Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, coming at you from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Experts for pediatric head trauma are Dr. Raheem Vellani and Dr. Jennifer Riley. Dr. Vellani is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and Toronto East General Hospital in Toronto. He completed his specialty training in Canada, UK and Australia and completed a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children. He is also the co-editor of the Hospital for Sick Children Handbook on Pediatric Trauma. Dr. Jennifer Riley is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital and the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto Department of Medicine and Pediatrics. Power to the little people! on the bed one fell down and bumped his head mama called the doctor the doctor said no more monkeys jumping on the bed as most of us know traumatic brain injury is the leading cause of death in children worldwide and when we are presented with a trauma in kids it's the head that we worry most about. Let's just jump into our first case. Mom comes in with her nine-month-old baby who's in a stroller. They fall down four steps onto a concrete sidewalk. The stroller was overturned. Mom reports that the baby cried throughout the event. Mom also reports that there were no other injuries except the head. Baby is otherwise healthy with no previous head injury or significant past medical history. On exam, the pulse is 132, blood pressure 85 on PELP, respiratory rate 22, temp 36.5, O2 sats 99% on room air, and the weight of the baby is 8 kilograms. Uh, going through the ABCDEs, the airway is patent, the baby's crying, there's good air entry bilaterally, the cap refills less than 2 seconds, peripheral pulses are palpable. On disability, the pupils are 4 millimeters equal and reactive. GCS is 15 with no focal deficit. The baby is fully exposed and the only sign of external injury is a large occipital hematoma. So the question here is, does this baby require a CT? I think before we answer that question, we have to be able to categorize this baby as, is this trivial head injury, minor head injury, moderate head injury. Uh, so Dr. Bellani, can you just give us an idea of what would make this child a minor head injury? Sure. And when you look at the definitions actually for minor head injury or just head injuries in general, uh, there's varying definitions. When you look at, for example, the North American, the Canadian uh, classification versus the American Academy of Pediatrics, which makes it difficult sometimes to classify these. The American Academy of Pediatrics came up with a statement in 1999, and uh, I'm unaware if there is any update since that time, but they defined minor head injury as any patient that came with a normal mental status exam at initial evaluation and had no abnormalities or focal findings on their neuro exam, as well as no physical evidence of a skull fracture. Okay. On the other hand, when you look at the Canadian Pediatric Society, their position paper sort of defined it as mild, moderate, or severe. And your mild head injury patients or your minor head injury patients were basically patients that were asymptomatic, may or may not have had a mild headache, and they actually defined it by having less than or equal to three episodes of vomiting, uh, a GCS of 15 at the time of presentation, and a loss of consciousness of less than five minutes, which is a fairly long period of time if you think about five minutes. Then the classification of moderate head injury uh, became a GCS of 11 to 14, and then other variables, for example, loss of consciousness greater than five minutes, you know, prolonged lethargy, they may have more of a headache going on, protracted vomiting, uh, amnestic events, seizure, uh, as well as uh, signs of facial injury and depressed or basal skull fracture. So in this particular case, the definition of head injury probably fits best with a minor head injury. A trivial head injury would be somebody who had no focal findings, no evidence on physical examination of, say, for example, a hematoma. Uh, 
feeding well, has no other issues going on with them. So just to review here, the classification of severity of head injury, according to the Canadian Pediatric Society, mild or minor head injury is one in which there is a mild headache, three or fewer episodes of vomiting, a GCS of 15, and a loss of consciousness for less than five minutes. Whereas moderate head injury is defined as a loss of consciousness for five minutes or more, progressive lethargy, progressive headache, protracted vomiting more than three times, post-traumatic amnesia, post-traumatic seizure, multiple trauma, serious facial injury, signs of basal skull fracture, possible penetrating injury or depressed skull fracture, suspected child abuse, or a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 11 to 14. So let's just look at historically as to what's been happening with the management of pediatric patients with head injury. In the past, we never had any good solid derivation rules or validated rules that could help us make the decision whether to or not to CTA a pediatric patient. And it's always been an area of controversy because obviously you don't want to expose the child to high doses of radiation that are required for the CT of the head. So looking at it from the previous perspective, when you look at children over the age of two years old, and there were several studies, uh, one of the ones was by Coyle, uh, the others by uh, Dietrich and Rivera as well. And the only convincing factors that they had that was consistent in all these papers in the past was any focal neurological deficit or a GCS less than 15 that was consistent with the child having intracranial injuries. And if you look at all patients that have intracranial injuries from all the head injury patients, it amounts to 4 to 6% of all head injuries that come into the ED. Of those in the past, about 1% to 2% required some sort of intervention, and usually neurosurgical intervention. Okay. So now that we've established that this is a minor head injury, it's great timing because just five months ago, there was a landmark study in The Lancet by Cooperman, which was called Identification of Children at Very Low Risk of Clinically Important Brain Injuries After Head Trauma, a Prospective Cohort Study. And again, this was in The Lancet in October 2009. What does this article tell us about who we should or should not be CTing with minor head injury? The Cooperman paper changes things quite a bit. Number one, it was a prospectively derivation and validation paper, whereby it helps identify patients that do not need a CAT scan. It was done in a, a consortium of pediatric centers. So again, a very specialized population with physicians that are very attuned towards examining pediatric patients. And they had over 40,000 patients on both the derivation and validation phase. And they also considered uh, stratifying the patients that came in to less than two and greater than two, which is what traditional literature has done. So the Cooperman paper basically looked at these cohort of over 40,000 patients, stratified them between less than two and greater than two, and said, how can we determine which pediatric patients do not need a CAT scan? Clinically important head injury was found in about 1% of patients, and clinically important injury was defined as either death, neurosurgery, intubation for more than 24 hours, hospital admission for more than two days, uh, with any injury on CT. Uh, about 0.1% of the patients required neurosurgery. In the validation part of the study, no patient had a neurosurgical lesion that was missed. So the low-risk criteria in children less than two years of age were the following. First, normal mental status. Second, no scalp hematoma except frontal. Third, no loss of consciousness greater than five seconds. Fourth, no palpable skull fracture, fifth, acting normally, and sixth, a non-severe mechanism. For low-risk criteria of children greater than two years of age, it was very similar that firstly, it was normal mental status, secondly, no loss of consciousness, thirdly, no vomiting, fourthly, no signs of basal skull fracture, 
fifth, no severe headache. And lastly, a non-severe mechanism again. They defined severe mechanism as an MVA with ejection or death of another passenger or a rollover or a pedestrian or bicyclist without a helmet hit by a car or a fall from more than five feet if the child was greater than two or a fall from more than three feet if the child was less than two. And lastly, uh, struck by a high impact object. If the patient had these low risk criteria, then there was no neurosurgical lesion that was missed. Again, for less than two years of age, normal mental status, no scalp hematoma except frontal, no loss of consciousness greater than five seconds, no palpable skull fracture, acting normally, and a non-severe mechanism. In children greater than two years of age, normal mental status, no loss of consciousness, no vomiting, no signs of basal skull fracture, no severe headache, and a non-severe mechanism. It seems sort of intuitive that if they don't have any of these features, then you wouldn't do a CAT scan. So my worry with the Cooperman study is that, just like with D-dimers and ruling out PE, the whole point of doing D-dimers initially was to try and decrease the number of CT scans we were doing. And what it did inadvertently was to increase the number of CT scans we were doing right. because it was a sensitivity test. To rule out and that if they had some of these features that didn't mean we needed to go on to CT necessarily. Dr. Riley, has this changed your practice? I can't say that it has at the moment because this is sort of what most of us have been doing in the eMERGE but there is a bit of a difference and it'll be interesting to see when this rule is validated sort of in a more community center um, because right now we're looking at academic centers where people see kids regularly and there also may be a little bit of a difference in the population of people who are seen at a pediatric center versus being seen in the community so a validation in the community is going to be helpful for us when we look at these rules um, they did comment that they would have de decreased the amount of CTs that they would have done in their population by 20 or 25 percent depending on which age groups you're looking at but I agree I'm a little concerned people have these rules and then if they don't apply then they're automatically going to order a CT now they did try to go in and look at you know this will eliminate CTs in a fair number of kids but what about the kid who has one of these features if they got a severe headache which is very difficult to tell in a three-year-old does that mean we should CT that kid I think they reported that uh, the risk was like 0.9% of having something on CT for any one of these features. But then you sort of have to think, okay, well, they have one, but now they have two. Wh where is my cutoff where for the, for the kids who have some of these features? When do I CT these kids? Yeah, in, in previous studies, they have shown that isolated vomiting with no other findings has a very, very, very low risk of any intracranial lesion as well as isolated loss of consciousness. I think based on previous studies, we can be pretty safe when they just have these isolated symptoms. Uh, the one interesting thing about the isolated vomiting is that the isolated vomiting tends to happen in kids who vomit for almost any reason, like if they're in the car or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so that's not very helpful. And so sometimes I ask, I ask the mom, you know, does your kid tend to vomit a lot? And if they're vomitors, you know, that might, that might help me decide right. as well. An impact seizure in itself does not increase the likelihood that there's going to be something on CT and should not trigger doing a CT if there's an impact seizure with nothing else to find. And that is in stark contrast to a delayed seizure where that is a high risk feature that does require CT that you have to act upon. And I agree with both Dr. Holman and Dr. Riley here on this, but it again, it is just a prediction rule, and that's what we have to remember. It's there to guide, but it's not an absolute. Yes, it has a high sensitivity for it, but I think you need to add to this clinical context as well, because as you said, you know, they may have vomited twice, for example, but it might be a child that has frequent reflux, and how do you gauge that versus, you know, this being the head injury population, like is it something intracranial that's causing that as well? This was done in the States, and I wonder if the Canadian data would be any different. I mean, generally, my understanding, at least with belly pain in adults, is that in the States, there's a, a much higher rate of 
of CAT scanning in adults who present to the emergency room with belly pain. Uh, and I wonder whether the Canadian data would be any different. Have you guys uh, read anything about the Canadian versus U.S. data on the rate of CT scan use in kids with head injury? There are a few things noted, and one of the things is the increase in trend in CT heads. Um, I know Klassen in 2000 reported that uh, the CT use in, uh, I, think it, I think he's going back to 95, it may have even actually been before that, um, was about 15%, and now um, the data is 39%. And in fact, I think it may even be higher um, of CT heads. Now, this is like cross Canada. And they're actually, when they looked at the data in Canada, was the range was for kids for CT head was like 5% versus 100%. Like it was a gigantic spectrum of which mm-hmm. kids would get a CT head. Um, and I think the U.S. is is very similar also, that CT use has increased. You've got about 12% going up to 22% um, in EDs. But again, very different between academic and communities. Academic hospitals, in general, because they're more familiar with kids, tend not to CT quite as often as uh, in a community hospital where they wouldn't see kids quite so often. I see. With this doubling or tripling of CT scan use over the last... 10 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, obviously one of the major considerations is radiation exposure. Can, can you just give us some numbers for a CT head in, a, say, a one-year-old, uh, what the chance of cancer or mortality from cancer would be? So there's two main issues when you look at high doses of radiation. One being, obviously, the, uh, the increased risk of malignancy, which uh, I certainly feel that the parents need to be informed about uh, at the time of getting the CT. Now, there are certain times... As with anything we do in medicine, there's a risk and a benefit to what we want to do. If you know the patient's got a major brain injury, you know you need to CAT scan the child. That's not an issue because they need to go for neurosurgical intervention. It's when you get into these mild to moderate head injury patients whereby, you know, the rate of intervention is 1% to 2%. And can you justify getting that CT and going to the complications? One being malignancy, the other one is learning deficits. So the younger they are, the increased risk of malignancy, and this can vary anywhere from uh, 1 to 2% to 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 1,000. There's lots of numbers quoted out there. There hasn't been a direct study that I have seen that looked at pediatric patients and followed that cohort prospectively you know, over 15, 20, 30 years to actually see the malignancy. A lot of it has been extrapolation data from you know, nuclear energy disasters where they follow the populations from there to actually say, okay, if this kind of radiation, which is equivalent to the CAT scan, what's their lifetime prevalence of them having a malignancy? That, again, needs to be taken into context. What about kids younger than three months? You know, we really need to worry about these kids. Does the Cooperman study address less than three months? And if they don't, what kind of clinical clues do we have that should be triggering a CT in that age group? When you look at the Cooperman, they said less than two years of age, and they tried to include as much as they could in that, uh, that cohort. Kids less than three months are always going to be very difficult. Kids less than a month, extremely so. There are certain clinical signs that you can look for. So, for example, a bulging fontanelle, sunset sign. You know, say, okay, something bad is going on here. There are ways you can get away with not CAT scanning these kids. So, for example, they've talked about doing ultrasounds uh, through the fontanelle where they can look into the parenchyma and the ventricles to see if there's any bleeding going on there. So, there, there are special populations within this group, obviously, like I said, less than a month for sure, when the NIC or the neonatal intensive care units they routinely do skull uh, ultrasounds to actually look for bleeding in the brain. Could this become, you know, mainstream or is it a skill set that's acquired over time? Again, it depends on the center that you're practicing at. Certainly, if the capabilities do exist to get an ultrasound with an open fontanelle as a first shot, I think that's probably worthwhile before going on to, to CT scan. But it would depend on local resources. Brand new, hot off the press, is the new CATCH rule, which is the Canadian Assessment of Tomography for Childhood Head Injury, just published this month in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. The CATCH study is the childhood version 
of the Canadian CT head rules. The CATCH study was a multi-center cohort study where they enrolled consecutive children with blunt head trauma presenting with a GCS of 13 to 15. So this is different than the Cooperman study. Uh, they included kids with a GCS uh, that were a bit lower. The main outcomes were need for neurosurgical intervention and presence of brain injury as determined by CT. There were about 4,000 patients enrolled and CT revealed that about 4% of these had a brain injury, which is a lot higher than the Cooperman, and that about 0.6% underwent neurologic intervention, which is also much higher than the Cooperman study. They derived a decision rule for CT of the head consisting of four high-risk factors. So these are the four high-risk factors. Failure to reach score of 15 on the GCS within two hours. Suspicion of open skull fracture worsening headache, and irritability. They also had three additional medium risk factors, and the three medium risk factors were large boggy hematoma of the scalp, signs of basal skull fracture, and dangerous mechanism of injury. The high risk factors were 100% sensitive for predicting the need for neurosurgical intervention. The medium risk factors resulted in 98% sensitivity for the prediction of brain injury by CT. So they identified two levels of risk in children with minor head injury. Patients with any one of the four high risk factors are at significant risk for need for neurosurgical intervention, whereas patients with any of the three additional medium risk factors were at risk of having brain injury that will be seen on a CT. The CAT rule included sicker patients than the Cooperman study, and so I find it a little bit more useful because with the Cooperman study, that's pretty much the way I practice anyhow. It seems intuitive not to scan uh, those kids, uh, but in the CAT study, uh, they had some kids with GCS scores of 13, and they were a bit sicker, and still they had a sensitivity of 100% for neurosurgical intervention if they didn't have uh, the high-risk uh, factors. So I think the CAT study, for me, once it's validated, will be more likely to change my practice. It is still in its derivation phase, which they've just completed and which is what they're going to be publishing on, but they have not validated this as of yet. And I think a lot of these things, when you look at, compare, for example, the Cooperman paper or the Canadian CT head rules, a lot of these kind of things come in very intuitively uh, that, you know, people that have been practicing clinically for a number of years will certainly look at these, uh, you know, clinical signs and symptoms uh, when they're making a decision whether to CAT scan or not. The one good thing about when you compare, for example, the CT head rules for the adult population, there's the American rules as well as the Canadian CT head rules. And in the Canadian CT head rules for the adult population, what they were trying to do is look at, you know, high-risk features that required neurological intervention versus a medium risk where they were looking at any sort of brain injury and CAT scan. The Cooperman study is interesting because it didn't go with kind of like the adult American CT head rules. It looked at specifically clinical traumatic brain injury. You know, do they require neurosurgical intervention? Do they require intubation? You know, admission to hospital? Those sorts of things, which are very hard defined criteria. Yeah, one of the things to be careful when you're going through all these studies, you know, be it the CATS, the Cooperman, or some of the prior studies that have come out with head injury, is that they all seem to have some varying definitions. And this is something that I brought up initially because you know, which definition are we using for a minor head injury? You know, um, the Canadian Pediatric Society one, the American Academy of Pediatrics one, are we using a GCS classification score? Which one are we specifically using? And we need to make sure that it's appropriate for that study then, or that study is appropriate to the patient that we're seeing in the emergency department, and is this applicable to them? So having said that, I mean, some of the criteria from the CAT study, some there may be some argument regarding their definition because... You know, moderate head injury may fit in that definition, in which case, what would people certainly consider observing a moderate head injury, or would they go straight to CAT scan? 
think what we're trying to do over here is find out what we would do specifically with a minor head injury patient, whereby they've got some signs but not all of them, and they're looking kind of well, but do we really need to scan them? I think that's the bottom line here. It's interesting that the CATCH study uses GCS 13 to 15. Um, it, unfortunately, still over 90% of the patients were GCS 15 on first presentation. Um, so it still doesn't tell us a lot about those 13 and 14. And the same thing with the Cooperman study. I think 97% were GCS 15. So very few were GCS 14 that were actually included. Because, you know, the lower the GCS, and most of them, you know, you're, you're comfortable in a GCS of 15 and potentially not doing a CAT scan. But a lot of people are uncomfortable when you're looking at GCS 13, 14, just observing that child um, and not going to scan. The CATCH study also says within the first two hours, um, achieving GCS 15. So if they presented at 13 and then came up to a 15, um, that's, that's interesting that that child wouldn't necessarily get a CAT scan. Um, and that plays a little bit to, you know, observing a kid and seeing how they evolve over time. Um, if their GCS is improving, then that's a great sign. And hopefully we can avoid doing CAT scans in those kids. When we're looking at, you know, trying to get disposition done for these kids, if you have easy access to a CAT scan or one of the default things, maybe, you know what, scan this kid and we can send them home right away safely. You know, we don't need to wait, keep them in the ED or put them in a CDU or anything like that. And it begs the question, are we doing any justice to our patients, right, and their families? Uh, so, yes, you know, we need to be cognizant of about flows in the emergency department, but we also have to ensure uh, the safety and the best practices for our patients. Yeah. And, you know, just to follow up on that point, you know, adults, it's easy. You send them up for a CAT scan, takes five minutes, they come back down. A child who needs sedation, uh, potentially, you know, that actually impacts your wait time even more. Um, but you do what is appropriate for the child. Again, the CAT yes. study was derived in a, in a pediatric center population. So again, we need to see this validated both in the academic center because that hasn't been done yet. It's ongoing at the moment, um, and it will have to be validated in a, you know, a, a community population. So the bottom line with the Cooperman and the CAT study are that if, you've been, if you treat lots and lots of kids and you're very comfortable with your trigger for CT, you should probably just take a quick look at the studies and see that they agree with your practice that you're already doing and you probably won't need to change your practice much. Uh, if you're a learner, a resident, there's a lot of nice little clinical clues in these papers that give you a rough idea of who, re who does not require a CT, so it's good as a, a learning tool. And if you don't see a lot of kids, then you should be looking at these papers carefully uh, to help you with your decisions. I know I'm having a lot of trouble remembering all of these criteria, so I'd like to look at the written summary, uh, which is available from the website, uh, just to go over it a few times so that it actually sinks in. When it comes to sedating children for sending them to the CT scanner, do you have any tips and tricks? It's a bit of a challenge. You may have to intubate the child, and there's complications and risks associated with that. But also, they're going to be away from the eMERGE department, which means the patient's either out of your care for a period of time, if you have someone appropriate to take them to CT, or you have to leave the emergency department, which may mean that the patient's in the eMERGE um, don't have the attention that they need. So there's a lot of issues when you start thinking about sedating kids. Here you're sedating this child where you're considering a head injury. You know, it could confound your clinical examination as well because sure. you're starting to think that the child's now attended might be worsening at this point. So there's a lot of risks and complications associated with trying to sedate a child to go through it. There are certain tricks that you can use. So, for example, the very young, uh, what we can tell parents is, you know, try and keep them up awake as long as you can so that they're really tired and exhausted and they fall asleep and you try and get them to scanner so that they're not moving. Or number two, uh, if it's a young child and the mom's breastfeeding or just feeding a bottle, go ahead, feed the child, and then they usually take their nap afterwards, in which case you can take them, swoop them up to CAT scan uh, and try and get that scan done immediately. Is there any role for x-rays in these minor head injuries? For skull x-rays? Yeah. For the very young, um, it can be very difficult. And I know Dr. Volani was talking about how they, they did separated under two and over two. And in part, I think that's because younger children are so difficult to assess. 
Um, they can have a completely normal exam and potentially have something bad, and they are not able to give you the information that you need. So there is an association with skull fractures and intracranial hemorrhage. So if you have a skull fracture in a young child, it's, there's more likely to be an intracranial injury on a CT. So in that age group, it's kind of another part of a physical exam, if you want to put it in you know, quotations, that if they, you know, on assessment, they have a skull fracture in a completely well child, I'd probably CAT scan that kid because of the association between skull fractures. Skull fractures themselves are associated with a mark on the skull, like a hematoma. So it's going to be fairly significant, but a presence of a hematoma. So a well-looking child who has a hematoma, I would tend under two, or even under one, but probably under two, um, I would do a skull x-ray. And if they had, a, if they were, if I had otherwise would not have scanned that, scanned that child, if they have a fracture on the skull x-rays, I would CAT scan that kid. So my take on it is when you look at skull x-rays, um, they're trying to be a little bit passe right now. And I think CAT scan, you know, with the newer protocols, the decreased radiation doses in specialized centers, uh, you can get away by going straight for CAT scan rather than going through a skull x-ray. Um, traditionally, when you got a skull x-ray and you did see a fracture, it increases the chance of an endocrinial injury by a four-fold. So it's not insignificant. And if you could catch that fracture, then yes, you could go on further to the CAT scan and actually justify it. The problem with interpreting skull x-rays is that, one, it takes a lot of experience. Two, you know, even with groomed clinicians, it's, it is very difficult to interpret. I mean, you've got open sutures, you've got vascular grooves, and the fractures themselves. And unless you see this day in and day out or do a lot of them, uh, it becomes very challenging to try and interpret them. There was a study done in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2004 by Chung and his group, and they would look at interpretation of skull radiographs by pediatric emergency physicians. So these are people who see pediatric patients all the time, you know, and they're groomed clinicians in that area. And they would look at 31 films between them. And what they found is, obviously, the accuracy was not affected by the patient's age or even the experience of the physician, and the sensitivity was only about 75%. So amongst pediatric emergency physicians were even poor at interpreting these films. I think in 2010, if you're going to be going for some sort of imaging, my interpretation would be to say that we need to go straight for a CAT scan uh, and just skip the skull films. I think the bottom line is if you're suspecting a skull fracture or have clinical evidence for it, then yes, you're going to be going straight to the CAT scan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you can observe them, but um, you know, some places may still consider skull x-rays Again, like I said, it depends on local resources. So one of the things also to think about with skull fractures, if you identify one on, a, on an x-ray um, or even on a CAT scan in a young child, is growing skull fractures or leptomeningeal cysts. Um, these happen rarely, but they do happen. Um, and I think they report around 1% um, as the, the risk of having one once a skull fracture is identified. Most of them are under three years, and 50% of them are usually under a year. I really consider it in kids who identified a skull fracture on that I, I usually will have them follow up with neurosurge at least once if I identify a skull fracture because the risk is that the meninges um, sort of move into the fracture and then prevent it from healing so it can wind up with a permanent defect. There was a, a case report that I read about an adult woman who presented with seizures and on CAT scan they identified a defect in her skull and then mo the mother recalled that when she was uh, three weeks old um, she had had a head injury but never had a scan. So it, it's out there. It's something to consider. I'd probably say most of the youngest ones, like under a year, um, I would refer on to neurosurgeon and outpatient just for a visit, just to make sure that it heals. Um, if you don't have access to a neurosurgeon, good follow-up with a family doctor who can make sure that things have healed um, would be completely reasonable. So going back to the case, we have our nine-month-old with an occipital hematoma and not too much else to find. Uh, would you do a CT then? So if I was faced with this case, I would, based on the history and the clinical features, I would actually consider observing this child before rushing them off to CAT scan. And obviously if they had any other findings that would get my spidey sense up or anything else that would fit uh, based on the decision rules, then certainly I would consider CAT scanning them. Okay, and if you do observe them, how long do you usually observe them for? So, when you look at the literature on that, there's no clear-cut guidelines to say how long and what goes on. 
The Canadian Pediatric Society uh, has given a consensus uh, of six hours of observation uh, in the emergency department. And if you're going to be sending them home, then it needs to be obviously a capable caregiver. There's a couple of caveats around that. Obviously, you want to make sure that they have the ability to come back to the ED, that they can transfer themselves back in, uh, that they have easy access to emergency medical services if they need to call 911 and come into the ED. Having said all of that, I think the, the most worrisome time is the first six hours after an injury. And the way I like to explain it to my patients is, or their families, is that the first six hours is kind of like the red zone. And once you pass that, then you get into the first 24 hours after that, which is the yellow zone. After that, the chances of anything requiring neurosurgical intervention becomes much, much less. So the first 24 hours are the most worrisome period. So let's say we observe this kid for six hours in the emergency department, and the kid is fine, GCS of 15, and goo-gooing and gagaing and playing. What kind of head injury routine do you suggest to the parents once you send them home? So most departments will have a standard set of instructions that are written out, and most of it is reasonably intuitive. The question is, do you get them to wake the kid up mm-hmm. during the night to make sure what their level of awareness is, and if you do, how often to do that? Is there any evidence for waking kids up and doing Q2 hour wakings? So a lot of the evidence comes from obviously the neurosurgical ICU where they've got patients that have got nurses that can wake these patients up and actually look for an acute deterioration. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the red zone is sort of the first six hours. And, you know, if they've come in, in the daytime, it's just say, well, carry on with normal activities during the day. If it's a nighttime issue... The problem is, if you're going to keep waking up a child every two hours, they're going to be irritable. You know, I'd be irritable if somebody woke me up every two hours. So I think we need to take that into context. And I've actually told patients that sometimes, if it's a very low-risk patient, uh, sometimes they can just they do not need to wake them up every two hours. In fact, just wake them up in the morning as usual. If I'm quite concerned about this child, obviously I'm going to keep them in the emergency department longer, uh, such that I can safely send them home then. Yeah, and I think one of the things Dr. Villani says is important. I mean, it's different if you're seeing this child at 8 o'clock in the morning and you know that they're going to be up for the majority of the day under observation by someone. It's a very different thing to discharge a child at midnight that you know is going to go home immediately to sleep. And they may be earlier in that red zone or yellow zone um, than the other child that you're discharging at 8 o'clock. So I think there may be you know, room for a little bit of interpretation on whether you wake the child up. I will usually tell parents to check on them during the night, check on them at least once. Um, And it doesn't mean that you have to completely wake the child up. If you kind of touch your child and they do something that's purposeful and normal, like roll over and put their finger in their mouth or, you know, to suck their thumb or pull up their blanket or do something appropriate, then that's, that's reasonable behavior for a kid. And I don't think you need to go any further than that. And for older kids... What kind of instructions do you give in terms of return to play and return to sport and return to school? There are a lot of guidelines that have been out there that uh, for return to play guidelines. Um, and I think now we're moving towards sort of for at least high profile athletes to have a more individual sort of approach. A lot of the kids we see in the Emerge are just, you know, casual Athletes, You know, they're non-professional kind of kids who are going to go out there and just play. So my standard instruction is it should be, like, if it's a significant injury that I'm concerned, um, then I would suggest a week off athletics. But usually I say a week from when they're normal. So if they have any post-concussive syndrome, so dizziness, uh, if they had a history of amnesia, if they have a bit of a mild headache, I tell them to make sure that those symptoms are resolved before they wait a week. For kids who are, you know, high school athletes, then I think that there needs to be a little bit more involvement with their primary care physician and their coach and when they can go back to play. Some of those kids, the other thing that I do recommend is after they've had their week off, and these are kids who've had their, you know, single injury, I get them to do some mild exertion, get their heart rate up and see if the symptoms come back. And then I tell them, then you need to talk to your doctor and maybe, maybe you need to be off a little longer. So what we're worried about in these kids is a second impact syndrome. That's correct. Those symptoms have to be totally abated before they can actually even consider going back. And what we would recommend to them is, you know, you can start going to the gym and doing like, for example, a stationary bike. So you don't get deconditioned, but you don't continue with strenuous activity whereby you can get impacted again. And as they continue to build on that, and as long as they continue to remain asymptomatic, 
the gradient at which they can continue to persist will then be individualized based on their sporting activity and obviously their precondition level as well. And once they're up to a certain point, uh, whereby they're totally asymptomatic, they've reconditioned themselves, then they can continue to return to play as usual. Uh, the second impact sy symptom or syndrome is is real. I mean, we've seen it in some high-profile athletes. We've seen people that have been had major uh, injuries secondary to that. Uh, so it's something that needs to be considered. Uh, it is something that the parents and the coach need to be aware of because a lot of these times the parents will push for their child or the child themselves, you know, if they're a teenager, will want to continue to push very hard to get on back on that team and get back on their sporting activity. So they need to realize why we're actually telling them to slow down with their specific activity, but they can continue to keep up with their physical abilities in other ways in the gym. And so when they return back to their play, they're not starting from scratch again. They do have some conditioning already built into them. And actually, when they compare professional athletes' recovery time and high school students' recovery time, the younger children in high school versus the professional athlete actually have a longer recovery period. You know, a child's brain is not the same as a professional athlete, which is why we have to be careful and make sure that the family and the coaches don't push a child back to activity before they need, before they're really ready. Let's say there's a constellation of symptoms that are worrying us enough to go ahead with the CT and the CT ends up being normal. Do we need to still observe the patients after that? You always hear about this delayed bleeding in uh, pediatric head injury. Is it possible that the CT will be normal at first and then later on they'll deteriorate? Is that something we need to worry about? So when, once you've gotten a CAT scan and you've seen that there's no evidence of you know, intracranial pathology, then it is relatively safe to send the patient home. Uh, there have been two major studies in the literature that have looked into this. One was a pediatric trauma registry of over a thousand patients, and basically what they did is they followed these patients up and found that none of them required neurosurgical intervention after having a normal CAT scan. And they looked at the role of discharging patients post-CT from the emergency department and said, yes, it's definitely safe. There was another study by Davis, uh, which was published in Pediatrics in 1995. Uh, and what they did is they CAT scanned patients with mild head injury. And again, this is where you get into issues of definition because their mild head injury patients were with a GCF 13 to 15. And they looked at 400 kids that had a normal CAT scan and said, well, were they all safe to be sent home? In their cohort, what they found was 1% uh, actually were readmitted to the hospital. And if you look at all four patients that came back, uh, one kid was actually on Coumadin, which again wouldn't fit our normal criteria. So I think we would have a low threshold to scan that child anyway. Uh, one patient got brought in uh, and they were observed for a contusion and two patients because of concussive symptoms. So generally speaking, if you look at the Coumadin child, Yes, they're going to be coming in, I, I think, regardless. The two with the concussion, they're just post-concussive syndromes, so they don't need necessarily a neurosurgical bed. They could be admitted to a general pediatrics ward, for example. And the contusion is the difficult one to catch sometimes, but hopefully if the child was symptomatic enough that they ended up scanning them. So if you're looking at a less than 1% readmission rate, uh, I think it's safe enough to say that, yes, you can send the child home having a normal CAT scan, with the caveat that, you know, you always have to give the parents the discharge instructions that if anything changes, anything worsens, by all means bring the child back in. So that brings us to the end of our first section of this episode, the minor head injury section. Before we go on to the next case, I just wanted to throw in there an experience that Dr. Valani had recently, and here he is to tell you all about it. Oh, and then I went to Haiti. How's that for news? Really? Yeah. What was that like? For the day. Uh, we went and brought back 110 people. I got called Monday evening, can you fly Tuesday? So these guys owned the plane. And what they did is they volunteered the plane time and the fuel so that we could go there and pick up these people. These are stable exactly. but injured US. kind of thing? So no, these are people totally stable. 
coming back, being repatriated. They were at the consulate over there. So you were there as a doctor or as a doctor? As a volunteer? Doctor. And how many yeah. docs were there? Myself. Really? Yeah. Was there anyone, was there anyone sick? Uh, yeah, there were. So we get there. And basically, we said, everybody goes sardine roll. I don't care if you're Bill Clinton's daughter or whoever you are. Just, you're at the back. The sickle and frail will come up to first class. And then Marissa and I were talking. We're like, okay, how do we arrange this? That I'm like, hey, what about ISO precautions? Because we didn't even think about that. So we're thinking stuff on the fly as we go. So we made this little sheet. If you have any of the following last 24 hours or 48 hours, please let us know. Fever, cough. <laughs> so they are on ILI screen, vomiting, <laughs> diarrhea. And we get there. And I'm like, where are the people? They're like... God, this is island time. You expect them to be here already? <laughs> We're there triaging everybody. Name, age, gender, previous medical history, meds. So in an hour, we triage 110 people. All in. Three kids we put on ISO. So we made the Tango Plus cabin ISO. And if you know sort of how the air flight, air circulation works, if you're three seats apart, you've got TB precautions, actually. So just the way the circulation goes. Every two minutes, there's new air. <laughs> And they've got HEPA filters on their circulation as well. So we put the three families on three corners of that cabin, close the curtains so that the other guys in the back didn't come through. And in the front, we put four frail people that, you know, need the wheelchair assistance. Going up, it's a walking ramp. So we put them on what's called the Washington, which is a narrow wheelchair um, that can fit through the aisles. So we haul them up, put them up, get them. Did that for the four patients there. And only one family member allowed there. Then these two diplomats came, sat in the front, you know, like in J class, and then the rest <coughs> going in the back. I'm like, sorry, guys, I'm going to have to ask you to move to the back. Like, oh, but I've been up for 48 hours, and this and that. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, we need the space for the sick and the critical ill. Oh, well, well, let us know if this. And she kept on bitching. I'm like, sorry, man, I don't care if you're a diplomat or not. We're trying to help everybody here. So, off to the back. <laughs> so, I uh, landed uh, the six-month-old with fever, puked on the flight. So I was cheeky. I took some of my own Zofran there. Yeah. Popped the Zofran tell mom, don't feed this kid anymore because we don't know what's going on. Fever and vomiting alone. The other one was a nine-year-old fever and abdopin. The other one was three-year-old fever and cough. Nice gig. One-day venture, man. Uh, like, just very fulfilling. Yeah. To try and go there. But then you're kind of applying things on the fly. Like, we didn't think about ISO. We didn't think about how we're going to triage any of this stuff. And it's like, on our flight, they were like, hey, what about ISO? What about this? What about that? Right? So it's kind of... On that way too. Moving on to our second case, we have a five-year-old who was the front seat passenger in a motor vehicle crash. The patient was wearing a seatbelt, no airbag was released, and it was a single vehicle collision. The driver lost control of the car on the highway, hitting a concrete divider on the left side. There was an unknown loss of consciousness, and the patient was confused and combative at the scene. The driver did not survive. Upon arrival in the emergency room, the patient's vital signs were a heart rate of 100, a blood pressure of 130 on 90, a respiratory rate of 24, a temperature of 36.6, and an oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. The airway was patent. Uh, breathing showed good air entry bilaterally. Uh, circulation showed good pulses and uh, cap refill of less than two seconds. There were multiple abrasions and a contusion over the left eye with a lip laceration and a chipped tooth. There was a seatbelt bruise on the abdomen uh, that was tender and there was a stellate laceration of three centimeters and hematoma in the right parietal region with no depression fracture palpated. There were no signs of basal skull fracture and there was a right complex ankle fracture which was open. The neurologic exam showed four millimeter bilateral pupils that were equal and reactive, a GCS of seven, so this child is obviously very concerning to me. Um, you know, you've got a passenger that's dead on scene. They've got other injuries that are obvious to them, an ankle fracture. They've got facial injuries associated with them. This child needs, you know, a, a major trauma center, basically, with some good resources available to them. By definition, if their GCS is 7, I'd be obviously trying to get their airway protected as soon as possible. 
continuing with fluid resuscitation, you know, getting the two large bore IVs and ensuring the normal saline is being pumped into them. I'd also be looking for other injuries as well because anytime you've got multi-system, you know, you can't rule out things on the chest or the abdomen in them. Uh, so this child basically once is packaged up in terms of getting their airway protected, getting their you know, uh, blood work drawn and the IV started and established on them, uh, then we need to start dealing with the head and what's going on exactly in there. Okay, let's start off with uh, the intubation. Is there any literature which helps guide us in head-injured children in terms of pre-medication? So for head injury, you know, the, the concern is increased ICP. And the process of intubating a child, we know, will increase, even in the short term, ICP because of the manipulation of the airway. So the goal is to try to blunt that response. Now, it's very difficult to do studies in children. A lot of the literature in kids isn't there, and information is extrapolated based on adult studies. One of the things that traditionally has been considered is using lidocaine as a pre-medication to try to blunt that response. There's not a lot of good evidence. A lot of the studies showing blunting of increased ICP are mostly adult, um, and they're not actually in trauma settings. They're mostly in um, the setting of brain tumors. Um, that being said, there is some evidence that maybe lidocaine does blunt the increased ICP. There's also a suggestion that it will cause a decrease in your blood pressure. And so that's a concern because your perfusion pressure is based on maintaining uh, your mean arterial pressure in the setting of the ICP, right? So your arterial pressure minus your ICP is your perfusion pressure. So if the ICP goes up or the uh, your MAP goes down, then you're compromising your perfusion. So that's a concern. So the key thing with the, the lidocaine, though, is all of the evidence is that it has to be done within two minutes. So it has to be at least two minutes pre-medication, which most of the time, if the child urgently needs an airway, that doesn't happen. So you really need to consider, are you going to be able to adequately give the time before you attempt the RSI? If that's the case, then you can consider lidocaine, um, knowing that the evidence isn't great, but it is a standard that most people um, have experience with, and a lot of people do continue um, to use lidocaine. If it is a you know cr tr truly crash intubation and you're pushing the lidocaine right before or you push your, uh, your inducing agent in your paralysis, then I'm not sure that there's any point to giving the lidocaine. Other things that you can consider, um, fentanyl. Again, as a pre-medication um, or even as part of your RSI because it blunts the sympathetic response. And so that, again, would have some um, benefit when you're looking at increased ICP. Fentanyl does uh, drop the pressure a little, but less than other narcotics. So it's something to consider in a sure. small dose. In this case, would you use lidocaine and, and fentanyl? If there was two minutes, then I would consider the lidocaine. I would use fentanyl, yeah. Blood pressure is good. Yeah, the blood pressure is fine. Time, they're not crashing at this point. And, and Dr. Villani? I would probably just go straight for the RSI. I think that the more you try and delay things by giving pre-medications and you, you know, you're adding more drugs to the cocktail that can cause changes in the hemodynamic parameters, the best thing to do for this child is get the airway secured, get them up to CAT scan right away. So fentanyl and lidocaine are an option. To consider. To consider. Yeah. The evidence isn't great, but theoretically it will blunt the ICP. That brings up the question of ketamine. I mean, ketamine, we use a ton in kids for procedural sedation, and it seems like ketamine is being used for everything now, for, for pain control in general. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it seems like it's the new propofol, like, a, like pro, when propofol became really popular about 10 years ago. My understanding is that there's some new evidence that suggests that ketamine is neuroprotective, and all this time that we've been worried about increasing ICP with ketamine, does this neuroprotection outweigh the theoretic increase in ICP? Should we be using ketamine for our RSIs in kids with head injuries? I think the bottom line is there's not enough information out there about that. And the traditional teaching is ketamine increases ICP, so you tend not to use it in children who have uh, head injury. That being said, it also will probably increase your blood pressure, um, so the perfusion may be maintained. Ketamine does increase blood flow, so yeah, there is a possibility that it, it may be something that changes in practice in the next few years. Um, but at this point, 
I don't have enough information to change what I do. So I still would not use ketamine in a head injury. Okay. Let's say the, the patient's blood pressure was low and you start your fluids. Uh, would you then consider ketamine in a head injured patient? I still wouldn't um, because I don't think the evidence is there yet. Um, you, I suppose someone could consider it. Really, in this setting, this child needs to be resuscitated. So fluid resuscitation, blood is appropriate, and automate wouldn't drop the pressure. So I would still choose automate. Okay. And how much experience do, do the pediatric emergency rooms have with automate? If you look at the Canadian centers, because automate's relatively new and it's a special release drug in Canada, I would suspect a lot of the centers don't have much experience with it. Uh, certainly the U.S. and Europe have phenomenal experiences with it, and they've shown it's been safe. Obviously, there are contraindications to it. You know, I mean, if a patient's got a seizure disorder or something like that, you lower the seizure threshold. That's the last thing. You know, there are better drugs that you can give for that. In a child like this, you know, where you're worried about their hemodynamics, because obviously you don't want their pressures fluctuating all over the place, uh, because it's not just the mean arterial pressure, but it's also the fluctuations in the pressures that are going to affect their resuscitation and their, uh, you know, worsening their brain injury. Uh, you need to make sure you're using a drug that's safe, that you're comfortable with, and that is not going to harm the patient. I would certainly think Atomidate is a great option for this. Ketamine would certainly be a consideration in my case. Uh, where I would consider it for this particular patient if I was worried, say they had a contraindication to Tomidate or something like that. But Tomidate would probably be my first choice for this. Okay. This child was intubated uh, with RSI and Tomidate, and post-intubation, his blood pressure dropped uh, to 80 on PELP. In this setting, with a child with this type of injury, the, the injuries that he has, we need to continue to go back to first principles with ATLS, fluid resuscitate this child, um, because not only are we you know, taking care of the child, we're taking care of the brain, trying to prevent that secondary injury. So resuscitating a hypotensive child with a head injury is important, and I don't think we need to be cautious with fluids in children with head injuries because the theoretical worry that it might increase edema inside the brain. You need to have a blood pressure um, to improve that child's outcome from their head injury and from their trauma. Uh, pediatrics in 2009, talking about early resuscitation in children with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Um, this study is interesting um, because uh, uh, there was a, a large percentage of kids who were not monitored for part of their early resuscitation phase, um, and in those kids, a, a, a large proportion had uh, hypotension, and the kids who had hypotension that uh, were not treated did worse than the ch children who had their hypotension who were treated, which is intuitive. Right? You need to have perfusion to the brain in order to um, have a good outcome. Yeah, the striking thing I found about that study was the fact that it took a long time to get a blood pressure, and then it took a long time to correct that blood pressure. Yeah. So the, the point being that we really need to get onto that blood pressure as soon as possible. So when we get these head injured kids, I find it very difficult myself to decide whether they have raised ICP and it's something that I should worry about. Should I just assume that they have raised ICP? What are some of the clinical features or clues that the patient has raised ICP and that I need to act quickly? Obviously the standard signs and symptoms that they come in with obviously is worsening headache. Uh, they may complain of some visual difficulties, persistent vomiting. They may have focal neurological findings as well. Uh, you know, be it paresthesias, be it paralysis of any sort as well. So these are the kind of things you would look for. Obviously, uh, pupillary reflexes may play an important part, so they may have evidence of anisocoria uh, that is mar quite marked uh, that you're able to pick up on. Those are the main things that I would look for when a child's coming in uh, if I'm considering any evidence of increased ICP. 
Yeah. So you'd be looking for what their level of awareness is, any lateralizing features, obviously, as Dr. Uh, Valani said, differences in the pupils. Um, you could look for Cushing's triad. And this child that we were talking about, he's already got a decreased level of awareness. Um, whether he has lateralizing signs, we may not be able to assess, and then we've proceeded to intubate, so it takes our ability to co sort of follow this child along. Um, but it, it then becomes, you know, sort of moving on to CT and deciding what the next steps are. So this child did go for CT scan, which showed signs of raised intracranial pressure with cerebral edema and tight ventricles. What are some of the management strategies we can use to prevent raised intracranial pressure? Um, so some of the things that we can do to try to manage raised intracranial pressure once we have it, is we can raise the head of the bed. It's a very easy thing to do. Even if a child's on a spine board, you can elevate the head of the bed, which will help at least with some venous drainage, supporting the blood pressure, giving them 100% oxygen as well um, to try to improve brain perfusion. After that, then steps to consider would be using something like mannitol or hypertonic saline to try to decrease the uh, edema. Let's talk about hyperventilation mannitol and hypertonic saline separately and what kind of evidence we have or don't have for each of these and what the general practice is in our pediatric emergency rooms. I think in general, hyperventilation is going to be for the child who is coning. Um, it's a temporary measure and it has a downside. It can cause ischemia. So it's really in a child who is a coning in front of you and you can take that chance to try to temporarily decrease their ICP while you start other therapies. Um, but I wouldn't routinely use it in a child who just increased ICP. I see. And what's your target PCO2 for hyperventilating in the coning child? Your PCO2 target is 30 to 35. And then in the adult literature, there's quite a bit about mannitol and hypertonic saline in a patient with raised ICP. In pediatrics, do we have any literature to guide us? Uh, there's not a lot of literature yet comparing mannitol with hypertonic saline. There's some evidence um, for using both uh, individually sort of against placebo that there's some benefit to both of those. Um, but whether one is better than the other, um, it's, it's, we don't know. We don't know. How does mannitol work? Um, there's a couple ways that mannitol works. One, it increases viscosity and so by that improves blood flow and other because of an osmotic diuresis so um, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Now this assumes that there's an intact blood-brain barrier um, so it doesn't cross so um, fluid will flow out of the brain so effectively decreasing the swelling inside the brain which will hopefully decrease the pressure. Um, hypertonic saline works similar. It doesn't, it does, sodium does not cross the blood-brain barrier particularly well either. So there's that osmotic diuresis there as well. I see. And in terms of in practice at sick kids, do they use mannitol or hypertonic saline? Most of the time you'll find people use mannitol. The times that we consider using hypertonic saline is when they're hypotensive um, because hypertonic saline has been used for resuscitation as well. Um, and so the feeling is if they're a hypotensive patient, mannitol might drop the blood pressure because it does cause this diuresis. Um, so saline, hypertonic saline might be more appropriate in that kid. Yeah, I would agree with Dr. Riley there. I think, you know, coordinating conversations with your neurosurgeon in your intensive care unit is, is critical and paramount in these situations. And knowing what the local practices, I think, are, are fairly important because, you know, one neurosurgeon may prefer one drug and the other one prefers the other drug. Uh, so consultation is definitely an important part of this whole process and getting them involved early. Let's review the dosages for hypertonic saline and for mannitol. So a bolus dose for mannitol would be a range of 0.25 grams to 1 gram per kilo as a bolus dose. Um, hypertonic saline, there is a spectrum, one, of what uh, percentage of saline is used and to what uh, volume is used for an infusion. Most common and what we use at sick kids would be 3% normal saline. And, you know, you can range it between 2 to 6 cc's per kilo. I usually choose 4 cc's per kilo as my bolus dose can uh, choose to run an infusion for uh, hypertonic saline, and it's 0.1 to 1 mils per kilo. There's not a lot of information on hypothermia. Um, mm -hmm. 
there's it's kind of like your maybe next tier after you do your um, mannitol and hypertonic saline. You consider mm-hmm. hypothermia as an option for these refractory increased ICPs. But that's ICU. Let's talk about little little pediatric clinical pearls. So you can give IV Zofran PO. Mm -hmm. You can do it with dexamethasone as well. Um, So for Zofran, you can take the IV formulation and mix it in a tiny bit of juice if you're going to give it to a child, if you don't have the dissolving tablet. And uh, for children who you're going to give dexamethasone to, I find kids vomit pediapred. So you can mix IV dexamethasone in a tiny bit of juice as well, and they can take that. For this episode's quote of the month, think about this one from Sir William Osler next time you have a shift to do. Live neither in the past nor in the future, but let each day's work absorb your entire energies and satisfy your widest ambition. Well, that brings us to the end of episode three on pediatric head injury. I want to thank again Dr. Raheem Vellani and Dr. Jennifer Riley for their great work on this episode. In terms of upcoming emergency medicine events, the North York General Hospital Emergency Medicine Update is going to be in Toronto this year, May 6th to 8th, I believe it is. And the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Conference will be in early June in Montreal. So I hope to see you all there. Until next time, take it easy.